Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. The burbs, or happy to be trapped in hell. <laughs> this is see, it's it's like riding a bicycle through your suburban cul-de-sac. You know, you just got to get back <laughs> on the old podcasting horse, and you're ready to go. Uh, I mean, in the podcast, in the suburbia of podcasting, we are definitely the creepy neighbors who don't cut their lawn and from whose basement you can hear strange noises coming at night. Uh, so, so contemporary news relevant to this, Rob Zombie is building not just Mockingbird Lane, but the entire neighborhood for his Monsters remake. Um, and I'm only assuming that one of the homes near 1313 is going to be for Horror Vanguard, specifically Mr. Zombie. For all the nice things I've critically said about your movie, you could at least give me a house. <laughs> uh, Rob, obviously, come on Horror Vanguard. We would love to talk about the Monsters so much. <laughs> <laughs> we would absolutely have that that house, though. The house where all the kids are like, do witches live there? To which the answer is, of course, yes. Um, hello, everyone. It's it's your Horror Vanguard for the week. Um, I'm John, joined as ever by my co-host, Ash. How are you doing, my friend? I'm on the other side of my kitchen closing a window. <laughs> um, we... And now I'm back. Um, I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. It is it is a busy week over here. Uh, we're both in the same conference, which is a lot of fun. But boy, are my arms tired! So much writing. Yeah, we we have been we have been cranking out the material, um, and we have also decided to make a couple of small changes to how the show um, is released. Hopefully, this is going to give people a bit more uh, consistency and when you can expect. Uh, new episodes of HV to drop. So, uh, Ash, would you mind, uh, as the, as producer of the show, would you mind explaining um, w- what are we changing and why have we decided to do it? Yeah, so early access for episodes will now come out every Friday and episodes will go public the following Tuesday. Uh, we're doing this to give our supporters a longer time to enjoy the episode uh, before the rest of the shambling hordes of undead get to check it out. And uh, it's also going to help us on the back end ease up our, our schedule, have more time to record episodes and prep for them. So all in all, it's a solid win for everyone. Uh, yeah, and it's it's super important to point out that we we really like to put time and effort into researching and preparing each of our episodes. Um, it's really important also that uh, people who support the show through Patreon uh, from just a few dollars every month get the, uh, the chance to get the episodes earlier and they get them for longer before they go public. Um, also, we've been on a little run of late of doing uh, episodes based around suggestions from supporters. Uh, patrons get access to the HV Crypt, which is the spookiest Discord server on the podcasting left. Um, and we have uh, a whole channel dedicated to episodes that you would like to see us do. Um, So if you would like to get early access, if you would like to get bonus episodes, if you would like to suggest a film that you would really love to hear an episode of HV take on, then please do go to patreon.com slash horror vanguard 
chip in a few bucks and help us make this show even better. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone who uh, generously donates to the show. You are legendary in our hearts and in our minds. So, with all that said, this is another patron request. Shout out to Nesta, who has been requesting that we cover this movie, I think, for the last two and a half years. And we, we, <laughs> we have at last, we have at last found the time and the space and the schedule uh, to cover a classic Joe Dante flick from the late 1980s. We are talking about the Tom Hanks vehicle, The Burbs. Now, people may have seen uh, Joe Dante's other films, but The Burbs maybe doesn't have the same audience. So for that reason, I think it's incredibly important. Ash, would you mind kind of explaining what's the Burbs all about? To paraphrase Deleuze and Guattari, the suburbs are a body without organs. This body without organs is permeated by unformed, unstable matters, by flows in all directions, by free intensities or nomadic singularities, by mad or transitory particles. We typically see the Burbs as a body full of distinct and clear boundaries, or in a deluso gotarian sense, a body with organs. The vision of the Burbs as demarcated by the clean lines of the white picket fence obfuscates the true source of boundary-defining lines. There is a slow-moving flow that scars boundaries into the social and psychogeographic fabric of the suburban landscape. This pyroclastic flow negates the Rockwell illusion with its choking and all-consuming cloud. The boundaries that define suburban life are the smooth and steady flows of anxiety, fear, and distrust. The suburbs are the contemporary surface of a gothic space. The wide-open yards yield to the crushing claustrophobia of a community defined only by anxiety. The winding cul-de-sacs twist ever inward into labyrinthian passages, navigable only by those born to their delirious mazes. Each quaint streets, a row of prefab gothic helmets, complete with plumes in which we attempt to negotiate a world that is ever haunted. In an alternate ending, Dr. Klopek takes Mr. Peterson aside and says, But Mr. Peterson, you're not quite right about the suburbs. No, no. Here all you have to do is take one step out of line. You paint your house the wrong shade of pink, you buy the wrong kind of car, you make one or two human sacrifices, then, then, when you walk down the street, everybody says, oh, there goes the weirdo. The theatrical ending closes, in part, with Mr. Peterson realizing the inverse of this, that it was he and his neighborhood friends who were the truly driving engine of madness that consumed their neighborhood. The Klopek's status as over-the-top mad scientist villains further drives the extent to which the average picturesque suburbanite is only steps away from the edge. It takes the presence of a human-sacrificing, Nazi-adjacent, Satanist mad scientist to put the suburbanite in their proper context. Join us as we take a leisurely stroll through Joe Dante's The Burbs. Ah, oh, yes! Absolutely. I was not expecting uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, but a perfect fit, I think. I, re um, I really do believe that Deleuze and Guattari are the Spanish Inquisition of like left theorizing, and in insofar <laughs> as that, no one ever suspects them. But you really always should. No one ever uh, suspects the uh, Deleuze and Guattari Inquisition. <laughs> no. 
Um, but on our first stop, on our first stop uh, in this um, uh, gentle promenade around the podcasting neighborhood, let us visit the, the formalism oh. zone. So would you would you like to begin our formalism zone by talking about writer's strikes? You know what? I think we should talk about one of our favorite things, which is organized labor and union power. Yes, uh, because The Burbs is a great example of what happens when you can't have writers work on your movie anymore. Um, okay, so let's let's kind of put this into context. The Burbs is released in 1989. It is um, being shot during 1988. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, in 1988, the Writers Guild of America uh, East and the Writers Guild of America West went on strike against all of the major film and television uh, companies that were represented by uh, the hideously named trade body, uh, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Uh, it uh, the strike last the strike lasted for 153 days making it one of the longest writer strikes ever. Um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, the, the WGA know how to strike. I mean, it's always, <laughs> it's always good to see a, an organized labor body strike for as long as the WGA does. Mm-hmm. So uh, hats off and hell yeah. And um, so unlike... Writers, writers' strikes are an interesting species of organized labor strike, right? Like, unlike the factory, where when the factory workers strike, the factory stops. Um, when the writers strike, the movies and TV can still keep coming. Um, it's just you can't write anything anymore. So for TV, this usually means a lot of reruns. And for movies and production, um, this means your otherwise non-improv uh, cast must all now be improv comedians. Uh, yeah, so I, I think what's interesting about this is that it exposes a kind of concept of criticality. Um, so, like, we don't exist in the same conditions as the 19th century, right? We don't exist in the, in, in the same historical uh, juncture as, like, the classic theorizing about class action. Um, so, like, mass movements that used to be able to, um, you know, shut down entire sectors don't necessarily mm -hmm. exist in the same kind of volume. But what does exist are sectors which have an increasing criticality to the overall functioning of capitalism. Um, I think one of the, the best examples of this is probably transit workers. Um, and it's no surprise that some of the most successful strikes in contemporary America have been um, people involved in aviation, people involved in um, transportation, and of course, people involved in education, right? So it's about identifying... Where is the critical point in the chain of production, even if that's cultural production? And how do you either disrupt that entirely or slow it down to the point at which uh, it becomes unworkable? And specifically what this kind of meant for the Burbs is that they already they had their script. It was good to go. They started filming the movie and then the writers went on strike. And this means that they could have they could have attempted to hire a non-guild writer, but um, as a signatory to the Writers Guild contract, this would have meant hell for everyone involved in the project and lots of bad legal things for them in the future. 
And it would have meant that going forward, Writers Guild writers wouldn't have worked with Joe Dante or mm-hmm, yeah. a lot of other or like people associated with the film in general, right? Like it's, this is again, the power of organized labor, you know, you, you betray the union and they lock you out. Yeah. Um, so again, uh, just a big salute to the 1988 writers guild. Um, and shout out to, da- to, to, to Dana Olson, who, uh, did not scab. Uh, he mm-hmm. was on, they, he was on set, wasn't allowed to say anything. Uh, wasn't allowed to uh, contribute. Um, I think they have a brief cameo as uh, one of the police officers right at the end of the film um, uh, who were doing, like, crowd control. So, like, Dana Olsen was around, but, um, yeah, like, no involvement, really. Yeah, and, and the age-old lesson is don't fucking scab. <laughs> yes, uh, I, if, if you need to be told, <laughs> the, the Writers Guild of America will tell you you don't scab. <laughs> yes, you. If you need to hear this from your horror movie criticism podcast, do not be a scab. <laughs> yeah, we don't cross picket lines. Um, Absolutely. So, so one of the so to to just I don't know keep having fun with the Luzo Guattarian jokes. Like this is the movie without writers. Hey oh. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things that, that that this does right is like like we were talking about earlier all of your writers can go on strike and your movie can technically keep going depending on what stage of production it's in and what, you know, decisions that you want to make going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the interesting things that this does through this movie involves the performances of, of everyone on board. Um, a, a lot of actors are now ad-libbing just huge chunks of their dialogue and scenes and all kinds of direction. Like the scene where Tom Hanks puts himself on a stretcher and wheels him in is entirely yep. ablib. None of that was scripted. Yep. Um, and let's be honest, there are some of the cast who are better at this or who come off better th- better at this than others. So uh, it's... Uh, Bruce Dern is a very charming weirdo uh, playing... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mark Rumsfeld. Uh, which sounds eerily close to a certain Donald Rumsfeld, but let's not get into that. Um, and Bruce Dern is very good at being this kind of like um, uh, reactionary, conservative character. Um, and, you know, it's obvious that it's a shtick. It's a bit. And it mm-hmm. it works mostly, right? Oh, I, I loved his character. I thought he was like super funny. And I think part of that is because, yeah, he's he's a caricature. Right, he's, he's a yeah, caricature yeah. of the overtop weirdo vet that lives on your cul-de-sac. Yeah, it's it's clearly a bit, and he kind of nails it. Um, I found. Uh, uh, what do you think about art? I, I, I art for me, uh, Art Weingartner was the most unsettling character in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because art is is 30 years before his time because i could swear to god i could see the maga hat materializing just just constantly on this guy yeah he's he's a trump guy he's 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 this this is this is what i i was thinking exactly the same thing it was like he's been dropped out of uh the 2017 america and just dropped into the past he's like this wealthy suburbanite who eats all the time uh, who is um, in a, cle- a loveless marriage? Who hates his wife and is this kind of 
chauvinist, misogynist. He, he would be a Trump guy. He would he would love Trump. Unquestionably. So his character winds up weirdly being the one that looking back on this is like the most that that, that has the best job of forsaging the direction of like conservative suburban politics. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because um, because in a way, its vision of the suburbs is a very conservative one. Um, for reasons that we'll get into when we sort of like dig into the discourse, um, I, I guess I guess maybe we should ask because it's it's such a big, it was a star making role for for Tom Hanks. It was a, a vehicle basically. Uh, what do you think about Tom Hanks in this film? What do we think about America's Dad? <laughs> um, the 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 Jimmy Stewart of the eighties and nineties. Yeah, I think that Tom Hanks is... So this is early-ish Tom Hanks, right? Tom Hanks gets his start as a tertiary character in an 80s in a 1980s slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in between this and The Burbs, we have like The Money Pit, you know, uh, another Tom Hanks vehicle. We have um, him acting alongside Dan Aykroyd in Dragnet. And this is if if you're used to Tom Hanks as the the current day Tom Hanks, the America's Dad, the wholesome, the post Forrest Gump Tom Hanks, uh, you're in you're in for a completely different guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, because because I'm just gonna put it out there, he is not playing a likable character. Yeah, this, this is before Tom Hanks. So this is actually one of the interesting things about this role is that Tom Hanks was at first uncertain about whether or not he wanted it because his character would be a dad and he was worried that that would yeah, kind yeah. Of age him in his career and then he wouldn't be able to get roles as like a single man anymore he'd have to be stuck as like dad characters which is deeply ironic considering what his entire career has become but this yep. is this is a frantic over the top almost slapstick tom hanks and it's a character that kind of vacillates between like having agency and making decisions and then being like shockingly passive. So, so, uh, and and that whole contradiction is summed up right at the beginning where he takes a week off work and doesn't want to go anywhere. So it's like, we have agency, but we also have like passivity. We also have a lack Mm -hmm. of agency and a lack of, and I think that that conflict, uh, on just on a formal level, for me, I end up being like, I don't really care. I'm not really super interested in this guy uh, as a character. You know, and you don't have to like characters. Characters don't have to be likable, of course, but they do have to be interesting. And so there would be bursts in this film where it's like, oh, this is this is there's something going on here. There's there is some depth to this character that makes him interesting. And then there's no kind of agency. And a lot of it does kind of fall back into like slapstick and 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 yelling, uh, <laughs> which yeah, which it's has a very its... shouty film. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I end up feeling kind of uh, just on a, on a purely formal level. I end up finding Tom Hanks's performance, I don't know, a bit weird. Yeah, I think it doesn't balance enough. There's not there's not enough weight on on like he's got a son in this movie. And his son, they, they tease some stuff at the beginning where it's just like, oh, your son has to, he has to see you as a hero. He has to see you as a man, you know, to look up to your, you know, you're the father, right? It sets up like that kind of classic father-son story. 
and then just immediately forgets about it. Yeah, then, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and then Art Weingartner is like this weird father figure to um, uh, Corey Feldman's character, Ricky Butler. Yep. Who is like, I guess he would be like the neighborhood rocker stoner type. Uh, yep, absolutely. Who who sees, who see? there's something quite, there's something kind of like sort of endearing uh, about Ricky who kind of sees the suburbs as a great stage upon which the, the et- eternal psychodrama of middle-class neurosis gets played out for his personal like enjoyment. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's, that's a great attitude to have. <laughs> well, I, th- I think, I think in a way he, he provides a great, his character, like Ricky Butler provides such a beautiful way into this movie on a discursive level. Cause like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he just invites all of his friends over for beer and pizza to watch his neighborhood explode and fall apart. And it's the most like he's the only one capable of recognizing that the the suburbs aren't like idyllic an idyllic utopia. They're a powder keg. Yeah, yeah. This this seemingly placid surface has these kind of like dramatic depths to them, and Ricky kind of gets it. And and gets it in I think a way that's there's something interesting about how he engages with it too, right? Because he is a suburbanite. He's he's part of this this ensemble this machinery but his his position within that is somewhat self-critical and somewhat distanced you know he's enjoying everything as a spectator sport but he's not really putting much stock in what's going on well that which is which is precisely the point of like like let's extrapolate just a few years from when this film is supposedly happening the ricky butlers of 1989 turn into like the grunge and punk movement of the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, they, of course they were spectators because the suburbs were to them like alienating places. So, so if, if art is like the Trump guy, uh, Ricky's going to turn into like a really big Pearl jam fan in like 1990, <laughs> um, is probably going to end up as like a sort of like slightly disillusioned liberal Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting massive. Like I didn't sell out, son. I bought in vibes. Off yeah, of him. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, uh, Bruce Dern's uh, Mark is is would probably end up as like a QAnon, like streamer. <laughs> you know, he would have his own like pirate radio station. <laughs> oh my god! There's something like. I think one of the interesting things that this movie does is it does kind of like capture that nostalgia. There's a weird nostalgia to the characters in these movies because they are all outmoded versions of like center and further right figures. You know, yeah. they're they're These are your dad's conservatives. Yes, exactly. Um, it's like, it's like uh, Ray is Ray Peterson is basically a, a young Tim Allen character. One hundred percent. That's what I think about him. Uh, and can we, can we just mention maybe the best performer in the whole film who doesn't get nearly enough screen time, which yes. is the incredible Carrie Fisher. That is, if if this movie has one just like unthinkably bad flaw, it's that Carrie Fisher's role is just so minimized and sidelined. Yeah, and it's like the classic you know, sitcom wife. It's like, oh, 
there's my there's my dumb husband, but I love him for reasons that we never really establish. <laughs> he, he he keeps uh, being guilty of arson and kidnapping and, <laughs> and and going on crazy conspiracy theory hunts. But you know what? I certainly do love that man of mine. Yep. Uh, he doesn't seem to want to spend any time with me. He would sooner run around with with Art and his the the, the neighborhood like gun fanatic. Well, we, but, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about like the the juvenile development of the kind of like suburbanite patriarch. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say, in Carrie Fisher's defense, like I really hope that you got to cash a decent check off of this one because it seemed like not a lot of work. Yeah, uh, and and you know she's very funny and and easily one of the most charismatic people on the in the entire film. Yes, yes, I I almost think that that's part of the problem is that like. You know, like at this point in Tom Hanks's career, he's just a goof, a goofball type character. You know, like this beset upon every man. Yeah. He hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't hatched yet into the Tom Hanks of today. He, he'll do Forrest Gump six years after this and then kind of figure out that he's a bit more artistic. Yeah, he's got, a, he's got more potential. Carrie Fisher is like a league above everyone around her in this movie. And you can feel it when she's on screen. Also, shout out to Wendy Shaw, uh, who is oh, also yeah. ex- extremely good in this, um, and is is has plays the character with like this knowing self awareness, which I think is very endearing. And there's there, there's something really interesting in that too, where like I almost want a like sequel to The Burbs, where it's the exact same plot and film, but from the perspective of these like incredibly well adjusted wives. As, yeah. as their husbands descend into madness and attack the Slovenian family down the block. <laughs> and of course, the I, I'm sorry, are you suggesting a remake with Slavo Žižek in this? <laughs> I, so for the record, every movie I've pitched on this show contains at least one Slavo Žižek, so yes. <laughs> oh um, my yeah. god, I'm sorry, I'm just like, the movie just kind of like all materialized in my head as one vision that I experienced in a single second. And it is, I am, there's, there's a single teardrop rolling down my cheek right now. I think that's, I think that's just glorious. I think that's just glorious. Um, so how, how about we uh, exit this old formalism zone and we, we had on, we had on through uh, to get to know our neighbors. Yeah. Let's, let's get to know the neighbors. Shall we let, let us leave the cul-de-sac that is the formalism zone. And, um, Check in with the neighbors. Our first neighbor are those goofy situationists. <laughs> and so what do you mean? What do you mean when you bring up the situationists? And um, uh, hey, it is, it's been a while. It has been a while since Ash has talked about the Situationist International. I'm, 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 try, I'm trying to not retire some of my horror vanguard catchphrases, but at least like... I don't want to get into the modality of saying like, yeah, I totally agree and bringing up the situationists all the time, you know? <laughs> um, but I had to hear because this is a, this is a movie about a cul-de-sac, you know? And so uh, uh, to talk about it again on the show, so the situationists uh, were like a Dadaist anarchist adjacent uh, art group that did theory and art and they were very experimental in what they did. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of their ideas, um, I clearly, I think, uh, hold up to this day and have really solid impacts, uh, and applications for kind of decoding on the world in which we live, especially Mm -hmm. our media. One of them is psychogeography. Um, also just to flag this up, 
the Situationists were very good at naming things, and their names for Snuff are incredibly cool. So that only helps. Um, but oh, psycho- yeah. psychogeography is basically the idea that the physical layout of the community in which you live has an impact on our emotions, our memories, and our general psychology. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the suburbs, the first question that comes to mind is like, this is much like Candyman and Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Friday the 13th. This is a movie about a specific geographic body, right? You know, yeah. we, we had like, you know, like the inner city neighborhood. This is the suburban neighborhood, right? Friday the 13th is about the classic Americana campground. So what, what then does the cul-de-sac as a body due to the minds of our characters? Well, I, th- I think the obvious thing is, is it creates a kind of insularity Right, so at one mm-hmm. point when Ray is digging up the basement of the the Klopex house, Art says, "I think it's uh, it's um, oh who is it that goes down there with him?" Art. It's Art. yeah, it's Art. Art says, "Oh, we should call the police, right?" Uh, and Ray says, "No, no, we shouldn't, because they're not going to do anything." So it's like there's this there's this um, very intense introspection to suburbia right to think outside of suburbia is kind of impossible which actually has been the motivation for so much great music right it's like people it's kids who grew up in the suburbs would go on to like start bands because that would be the way that you escape from suburbia you have to like build up a kind of escape velocity to get away from the place because its internal kind of inertia is so strong and and this this i think is is such a good thing to bring up because the suburbs are, are quite literally designed for this. Yeah, and you before we started recording, you were, you were talking a little bit more about this in in the context of the suburbs as a kind of technology. Yeah, so there's this great book called Extra Statecraft: The Power of Infrastructure Space by Kelling Easterling. Or, oh my God, Keller Easterling. I have been knocking it out of the park for uh, speaking clearly on this episode. <laughs> Um, but the book is really fantastic and it, and it seeks to explore the ways in which our infrastructure like roads and how we design neighborhoods isn't just a, a building technique, but is actually an information technology that goes on to further code and in program aspects of our society. And what I think here is really interesting, and this is, of course, the cliche argument about the suburbs, but like these are cookie cutter houses in streets that are all the same, in neighborhoods that are largely the same, right? On streets with like these entirely fabricated names, you know, like Pleasant Avenue, Sunny Sunny Lane, you know, like it is is this this uh, it's this trepanation of culture that mm, happens yeah. through these physical infrastructures becomes this like almost like this psychic medical apparatus designed to lobotomize everyone inside of it. We are well, writing great grunge lyrics today, by the way. <laughs> Suburban it's, lobotomy, it's... Horror Vanguard's first LP. <laughs> uh, I, think pe- I think people would buy it. I think people would buy it. I'd buy it. <laughs> and it's not just an information technology, right? It's a management technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, suburbia, of course, was at least uh, at least in the 
in America exploded in the aftermath of World War II, right? In in the midst of America's uh, productivity boom, huge economic growth, a huge return of uh, formerly enlisted men, and of course, uh, a, a huge growth of urban sprawl. And so suddenly there needed to be a way of managing and organizing a newly uh, kind of emergent middle class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and every suburb is a freestanding miniature city, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the, the concept of the city is, is a large human gathering designed to sustain a lot of people in a small geographic space. Mm. Uh, the, the suburb is a ludicrous attempt to do this, but not invite a lot of people to come with you. So every yeah. suburb has to have all of its own self-sustaining apparatus, or you need a personal vehicle that can transport you from area to area. Um, and th- this ties into the, the suburbs as an information technology that's designed to replicate other technological aspects, right? Suburbs need cars. You know, uh, as the personal vehicle goes away and gets and phases out, the suburbs must, uh, as a natural consequence of that, start to wither. You know, yeah. like like grapes on a dying vine. And I think there's there's a psychogeographic aspect of this as well, in the sense that like you're you're living in an area that can have no memory, right? Like all of your street names are fake. Every suburb has like Washington Lane even though it's like some part of the country that Washington has no meaningful connection to. They've all got like their pleasant avenues and, and main street. Everyone's got a main street. Like, like there's, there's no history here. So there's no past. So there's no memory, which, which pushes this present anxiety even forward. All of the houses are the same. Everything is similarly paced and designed. So when you, when you're surrounded by all of this sameness, anxiety has no outlet. You know, there's there's no nucleation sites inside of the suburb for things to safely bubble away. You know, things things just reach critical mass there. Yeah, and uh, again, it's important to stress that that's all by design, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so that that uh, attitude of of Ray and Arts, where they're kind of policing their neighbors, they're vigilantly trying to defend the the imaginary space of the neighborhood. That's, that is all psychogeographically inculcated by the very environment they find themselves within. Oh, absolutely. Like, and I think this movie, one of the things that I mentioned in the Precy that I think is incredibly interesting here is that like, who, who are the bad guys <laughs> in the burbs, right? It's not... Yeah. It's not just a serial killer. It's not just some, you know, like vaguely Eastern European bad people. It's yeah. like mad scientist, neo-Nazi Satanist, right? It, it is simultaneously the ultimate manifestation of who you're afraid to have in the suburbs, right? It's, it's this reflection of the satanic panic. And on the other hand, it, it is the necessary mirror in which the, suburb, the suburbs as kind of like a larger psychogeographic body must see themselves. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you're completely right when you talk about the way in which the structures of the space perpetuate this kind of, uh, the, turn it into kind of a hothouse of gothic anxieties. Uh, and those are intensified because you don't have the distancing effects of history. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, so like the idea of the haunted mansion from 
the 1400s turns it into kind of a curiosity something that can be kind of cataloged it can be it can be turned into a tourist attraction it, it it's not as immediate but all of these gothic anxieties and neuroses are kind of bubbling away under the surface all the time yeah the the very history of the gothic mansion contains within itself the tools to to uh, reconcile its own haunting, right? Mm. A, a haunting necessarily requires a history and, and an accessible history in that, right? You, you know, your, ha your haunted Gothic mansion is haunted by the, the ghost of the murdered ex-lover or, or, or something. And that, that gives you tools to address and contextualize and understand and move through the space. Yeah. The suburbs by design, by, by this information technology that they replicate, have no history. There is no way to contact the ghosts there. Everything in the suburbs was built yesterday, even if it's been there for decades. And it's precisely, it's precisely what makes them so paradoxically kind of mundane and terrifying, mm -hmm. um, because they are they're, they're dependent upon housing crisis. They're dependent upon massive uh, capitalist expenditure. But they're 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 completely frozen in time and the time that they're frozen in is the present you know they have no past and increasingly they have no future either one thing that i find incredibly interesting about the suburbs broadly in the context of horror cinema is that there are horror movies set in cities there are horror movies about cities uh there are horror movies about city life um, but there are not very many movies where the very existence of the urban is the nexus of horror Right, is the thing that is the thing you're afraid of. There are mm. countless films where the fact that the suburbs exist is the thing that you're afraid of, is the thing mm -hmm. that, that's scary here. Everything else is set dressing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween is the is the the standout example of exactly this uh, kind of the, the the violence that underpins placid, benign seeming middle-class bourgeois existence is always omnipresent which is exactly why you have that kind of policing function right the standards are, are that high because any difference could be a disruption and disruption almost inevitably collapses back into violence and there's something there's something about this that's just like so appropriately gothic it, mm. When it comes to relocating the contemporary Gothic experience, or at least roughly contemporary, because this movie is like 30-something years old. But we've got all, all of the makings. We have all the Gothic sauce here. All of the ingredients to oh, yeah, a yeah. delicious Gothic mole. Right. We've got we've got like we've got the labyrinth, right? They're in a cul-de-sac, right? The winding streets of suburbia are, are inherently labyrinthian. They're also mm -hmm. deeply haunted. E even if, mm -hmm. as we discussed a moment ago, the, the suburbs struggle with the grappling with of ghosts by erasing their own history, but they become haunted in a different way. Like all of those little windows or eyes watching you constantly. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think of it as like a paranoid perfectibility. Right? Because... Mm -hmm. The logic of suburbia is the logic of the perfect capitalist, right? Which is oh, yeah. you're free you're free to associate with others, but your property has to be expertly demarcated 
And anyone who violates your property in even the smallest measure should be met with violence. Uh, the very the very first opening scene where uh, the dog takes a shit on somebody else's lawn, so the guy pulls out a gun, <laughs> is a really is a really good example of this. And because the suburbs over the last thirty years have started to wither, that violence has has amped up. And I think uh, the the most kind of uh, the thing that I was thinking about watching this was like, if you had to do a remake of this film, you would have to include those um, that m- m- that uh, middle class married couple from St. Louis uh, who lived in a gated community, and uh, when a um, when a protest broke into the community, uh, they they all they pulled out guns, and it's like that's 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 the logic of the burbs, right? You're not behaving in the way that a good capitalist should. You're refusing, you're, you're even threatening that you might somehow damage my property rights. Ergo, you know, I'm, I'm watching you. I've got weapons. I'm willing to be violent if I have to be. And, and I think part of, part of the kind of psychic exchange that's happening here is that like in, in, an, in a city environment, you are by just the sheer law of averages destined to encounter a lot of people that you will find to be very strange. Uh, this, this also gives, I think, a lot of understanding and a lot of scope when it comes to like perspective. The, the suburbs are, are a, a cloistered panopticon in which you can only ever like stare with your eyes taped open in a Levitico experiment at your neighbors. So anything that, that comes in from the outside world is, is infinitely suspect and hostile. Yeah, precisely. Um, and that explains so much about the logic of this film, right? The, the, the entire inciting incident is, well, they don't fit in. They don't belong here. Yeah, it, and it's and it's like it's all the little things. It's like oh, they're they're not mowing their lawn. We never see them leave the house at the appropriate times of day. Yeah, we 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 are not able to observe them correctly, and we can't observe them performing the rituals of suburban bourgeois existence correctly. And like the the one the one thing that really ices this cake for me too is that like oh, there's another like I feel like that's another catchphrase I might be growing, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, one of the scenes that really ice uh, cake for me is that, like... Uh, listeners, if you would like to suggest a catchphrase for Ash, please get in touch at twitter.com slash horrorvanguard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let, let, let's do that. I, I want some crowdsourced catchphrases. What, what's good? Um, but, but that scene where um, Hans, the, the kind of like the, the young man living in this house of evil scientists... Um, is like taking garbage to the street, but he like loads it in a trunk of his car, drives the car down to the curb, takes it out of the trunk, throws it in the trash, tamps it down, drives back inside. And like t- Tom Hanks is like, I've never seen that. I've never seen anyone throw away garbage like that before. And it's just like, that is su- such a good example of this neurosis because there's like an infinite line of reasons why you would just like drive your garbage to the curb that are normal and and perfectly regular even though it's a little out of the ordinary but the fact mm-hmm. that they immediately use that and the grass not being taken care of and all of these like little things start to form a constellation of like oh they must be satanists 
They're Satanists because yeah, they're the, throwing out their <laughs> trash wrong. Yeah, that's the oh, that's 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 how suburbanites actually think. You know, that's 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 cop logic. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so I I saw a dog, uh, and therefore I had to shoot it because it was going to kill me and eat me. Um, like that's that's the logic of of like. Uh, you know, American exceptionalism. It truly is. It's mm-hmm. incredible. Ab- absolutely, one hundred percent. And like, like the exceptionalism, I-, I think, is so highlighted in this suburban context, right? Because you get like, um, so so uh, Mark Rumsfeld, uh, Ray Peterson, and Art Weingartner are three like primary protagonists, right? They're the three guys that are on this adventure to figure out what the Klopaks are up to. Yep, just guys being dudes. Just, just guys being dudes. It's so caustically juvenile the way they go about everything. It, like the the whole movie, it, it reminds me of like, like oh, when you're like eight and you go on a mission with your friends, you, you know, and the mission is just like it's like gather rock from park or something like that. But it's but, yeah, yeah. but internally, it's the most important thing that's ever been done. Everyone's got code names and walkie talkies and squirt guns. Uh, and the movie shows kind of what happens when you're emotionally stunted and you become the literal man-child. It, and not the man-child that is like living in a shrine of Funko Pops, like like the pop culture man-child, but like the, li- literally the adult male who possesses the emotional faculties of a boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which explains why all of them seemingly are at best completely indifferent towards their towards their wives there there is this uh weird very adolescent very juvenile anxiety around heterosexuality and mm. and and marriage um you know it's like there's a scene where where uh carol says to them no like ray can't come outside to play now <laughs> yeah. and it's like this is this is how middle-aged conservative men are. <laughs> exactly right, and like one of one of Art Weingartner's line. Uh, so so uh, Tom Hanks's character kind of waffles throughout the movie, uh, but because he's got his wife on one side, who's like, "Honey, please stop committing felonies." <laughs> yeah, and then you, can, you, can you please just be normal? Can you can you stop <laughs> breaking into our neighbor's house and setting fires? It's what you'd say to a teenager, <laughs> right? And then and then you've got his friends on the other side, which are like, like I got this book on Satanism. Our neighbors are evil. We have to stop them. And it's like so. <laughs> but but uh, Art's one line. So so Tom Hanks is like, oh, maybe I should listen to my wife. And Art's line is is listen to your wife. Who listens to their wife? Listen to me. And it's just like. The, the, this movie, perhaps unintentionally, is is just such like a powerful lancing of this kind of gothic suburban patriarch, right? The, the, this kind of like collapsing, degrading, like self lambasting figure. Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, almost completely, like completely without purpose, trapped in. Uh... A uh, an ossified structure of the of of like normative heterosexual marriage that seems to be completely you know dissatisfying for everybody involved, uh, not really able to kind of uh, have social relations with people on any kind of like 
level that gets beyond, oh, well, you're doing the thing that you're not supposed to be doing. Ergo, you're a bad person. Like, it's it's so, it's like, it's like, this is what living in suburbia will do to you. It will, it will turn you into this kind of like husk of a person. And like, my favorite example of this is the whole reason that, that like the plot starts is that he takes a holiday from work, but doesn't know what to do. Right, because going on holiday sounds like too much work. It sounds too much like effort. Driving to the lake, oh god, how terrible that sounds! So, uh, you know, work clearly the only like this mythical land of work. It's clearly the only thing that gives life any meaning. So, without it, you're just gonna hang around the house and, as he puts it, drink a couple of hundred beers. It's just th- bleak, man. It's, it's just bleak. I, I think this speaks to the kind of like psychogeographic nature of the suburbs too, because they're supposed to be a utopia. They're supposed to be the most idyllic place to live humanity has ever achieved, right? Like this is the inciting ideology of the suburb, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is yeah. paradise on earth, you know, free of all of the ills of the rest of the world. You will live in, in, in splendor there. So why ever take a vacation? Why leave? If it is this thing that it claims it to be, there's no, there's going on vacation is functionally incorrect. You know, like you, you go to Disneyland for a week to see something goofy, but then you go back to paradise. And so like we, we see in, you know, like uh, Mr. Peterson's indecision, this kind of logic replicating itself. Yeah, it's like, well, what, what, what are you gonna do with your day? Nothing. I, I might watch the bull game, you know. And it's like all of the concerns, like how do you fill your time? It's so small stakes, right? You know, do you want to go get one of those sandwiches? Do you want to go to the bowling alley? No, why would I leave? I've got neighbors to spy on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hell is other people, right? Hell is other people. <laughs> But but you very rarely get to see a class of people who are happy to be trapped in hell. That's true. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Episode title detected. The Burbs or Happy <laughs> to be Trapped in Hell. Um, so, um, oh, go on, go on. I was going to say, I, I really want to talk about the ending. Yes. Um, because there was one... There was one speech where I was like, Ray's character, who is this boring Republican, redeems himself when he gives this incredible speech where he just rants at his friend for being an absolute lunatic and going, you know what? Maybe we're the ones. It's it's all our fault. Why wouldn't they keep to themselves? This is how we treat them. And I was sitting there going, ah, yes. Yeah, finally, a moment of realization. And I, I, I love that final speech at the end. I think it's so good. I, I really, really, really like that. But for me, one of the things that undoes it just a little is that immediately following that, uh, we find out that the Klopex are actually yes! the people that they <laughs> thought they were the whole time. So it turns out uh- that these these reactionary maniacs destroying their neighbors lives and homes it actually turns out they were right their neighbors were secret satanist monsters i is isn't this just mind-blowing whether like i i i got i got a little bit mad because i was like oh yeah great you know 
maybe there's been a, a, a moment of growth here. But no, even though, even though you've admitted it was completely without basis, that it made you look like a lunatic, you were still right all along, which is like the perfect closed hermeneutic circle of, <laughs> of, of conservative logic. Yes, I, I had no evidence for the things that I believed, but I was right all along, therefore I was right to believe them. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is the most, like, precursor to Iraq War logic possible in a late 80s movie. This, this is just, oh, oh, it's oh, so oh, there good. Are, there, are, there are WMDs in my neighbor's basement. It doesn't matter if we don't find them or never find them or, like, like have to make them up along the way. Like, our actions are completely self-justifying. Yes, uh, this, this twist is, is, is so good because it just, it's so, it's so cruel because mm-hmm. you're, you, you finally go, oh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe Ray has kind of learned something and he's going to walk, walk away from suburbia. Uh, but no, no, he was right. He was right all along. And what's needed is you need to double down and you need to believe even harder. And, like, and the, the kind of really chilling bit is um, what he says to uh, um, Ricky, what he says to Ricky on the way out where he's like, you need to watch over the neighborhood now. It's like, yep. no, Ricky, you were doing so well. <laughs> Don't turn into Ray. <laughs> R- Ricky, you were steps away from becoming like the bassist for Pearl Jam. Why, why turn away now? Um, yeah. Wh- what about you? What do you think about the ending? Um, so I, I totally agree with, with what you're, what you're outlining here. I, I think it is the most like, uh, half-cocked self-justification possible even for, from like a from from a formalist and filmic perspective like the ending is very annoying uh because it, it comes out of nowhere it, it, you know like it, they set up this joke where it's like no they're just they're just normal benign weirdos right they're they're just like this weird eastern european family that eats sardines on pretzels and doesn't like to mow their lawn and then they they, they just double down on everything that's been going on in the movie in the most unsatisfying way imaginable. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so mean, and it's like, uh, as uh, you know, I I I initially was like, oh, I really dislike that, and then the longer I thought about it, the more I was like, that's a great that's a great thing to leave in this kind of really really vicious ending where you've you've exposed these these suburbanites as being ridiculous bigots. Uh, whose whose performance of bourgeois respectability just con- conceals this seething cauldron of libidinal psychosexual neurosis and violence, and you still let them be right at the end of the day. <laughs> just a, a phenomenally baffling turn at, at the end of the Burbs. Uh, I I am choosing to believe. I am choosing to believe that it's done deliberately, and it's it's. It makes the satire not just about those individuals, but about mm-hmm. the condition of the condition of suburbia. Oh, itself, so what right? you're saying is that this is a situationist film? Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> no, it's a astute point. Well made, sir. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it took us. It took us about an hour, but I have finally agreed with Ash. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I think this. I think this movie. This movie is great for for just a, a psychoanalytic unpacking of what goes on inside the mind of a suburban patriarch. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
It is a bleak, horrible, soulless place. Imagine, imagine the castle of Otranto, but the castle is tiny and there's like several thousand identical castles loosely connected with small streets. That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with thousands of Manfreds who get to hang out all the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and and ignore their their wives. Like it's it's it's. I feel like we could talk for another hour about this. Um, like uh, we haven't even talked about the the incredibly weird dream sequence. Oh, I love it's my uh, favorite scene in the movie too. Which is my favorite scene in the entire film because it exposes just so clearly what the film is about. Where he starts uh, watching various horror movies on television. And there's Mr. Rogers and mm. there's this kind of, you know, uh, uh, Carrie Fisher on a balcony. And then there's these kind of fantasies of death and dismemberment. It's like insanely psychoanalytic. Um, and and, and the, like, thing, the, the thing that he's killed on in, in, in the dream is a giant grill. And, and what, is, yeah. what is the Ur <laughs> symbol of suburban masculinity than oh having the biggest and most powerful grill imaginable? Yeah, guys just want to grill. Dudes, dudes just want to grill, man. And the, it doesn't the, matter if he just, this is the imagery isn't literally phallic, but he is he is murdered on the most powerful symbol of suburban phallic energy. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, as as I said, dudes rock. Flip, <laughs> flip, just... Flipping my table in sheer rage at that dream sequence. Also, in like so, so the chainsaw, the, the the chainsaw. Okay, like there's so much to talk about with the chainsaw alone, right? The chainsaw is clearly phallic, right? Obviously, this is horror 101. Uh, yep. Pe- pen- yeah, yeah. Penetrating the the protective wall of of a suburban enclave, right? It, the the chainsaw t- literally, viscerally tearing through the womb of the suburban environment here. But wait, what's that? There's more. The 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 chainsaw in question here is a still brand chainsaw right? That brand of chainsaws has been around for over a hundred years. And as you might have guessed this by their German sounding name, they worked for the Nazis for a while. Klopek is signaled as being a Nazi earlier in this movie, right? Like, like the, the, the undercurrent of, of project paperclip, like madness going through this film. I just, my mind is rending itself. I am being lashed to a giant grill right now. <laughs> uh, hell is a barbecue in the suburbs in which you are the thing that's grilled. <laughs> so should we, should we move on to our questions for the audience section? Scientists of all ages. Brilliant. Gee, Just brilliant. Okay, so one of my questions, one of my questions is that this uh, film features a clip from Mr. Rogers. Um, and Mr. Rogers uh, is known for the Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, so therefore, is it possible to think of a positive vision of neighborliness uh, that gets away from the, the hell of suburbia can we think of better ways of living with one another than being trapped in the endless labyrinth of the suburbs? Go for it. Let us, let's, what are your questions for the audience, Ash? Uh, question one. 
What do we think of the two garbage men in this film? Specifically their conversation and Rumsfeld's reaction to them. Uh, mm-hmm. How can we read the garbage men as more than just utility workers, right? What is the function of, quote, removing trash from the suburbs, close quote, especially in the context of the fact that that pile of garbage remains in the street up until the very end of the movie when the neighborhood is partially blown up? Yes, absolutely. My, what a great question. My my second question related to your Mr. Rogers question is how do we balance the correct nature nature of Mr. Rogers' thought? You know, in that getting to know our neighbors, rebuilding community, truly connecting with those around us, and the fact that as a, a aesthetic piece of iconography, Mr. Rogers and the Rogerian world are kind of ensconced in this suburban adjacent area. Mm -hmm. those are my questions uh well i've i i have asked i've asked my question about mr rogers and i think my other question is and this is something that um you know maybe we didn't have the time to give the space that it deserved but i really think it's important to think about the role of uh race in in suburbia and in this film in particular because it's a film with uh pretty much no black characters until right at the end um, and the ways in which moderns, you know, I think it's important to uh, think about how modern suburbia's ideology has been turned into a justification for uh, racist and often very violent treatment towards people who aren't white. And how best can we unpick that? Not, not my best phrased question, but um, I hope that makes sense. No, no, I, I, I think this is this this is completely correct, right? Especially like in, in our contemporary context with like Get Out and Us and uh, the the kind of like concept trailer for that Karen movie. Yep, and of course, so many um, real world examples of uh, you know white people calling the cops because. You know, uh, there was there were a couple of black guys waiting at a coffee table or there was someone walking their dog or, you know, all of those real world world examples. I do think it's important to think about how do we how do we unpick that aspect of suburban ideology? Yeah. And I think I think just to jump off this and get like a third bonus question in there. But like, what do we think of that as the function of making the other in this film, the Clopex, this vaguely. Eastern European, vaguely Nazi, just vaguely everything, you know, explicitly white family. Yeah, exactly. But I think uh, I think that'll about do it for this week's episode of Horror Vanguard. I uh, thank you all for joining us today in our our lovely, lovely suburban crypt. Uh, mm-hmm. We look forward to having you over again. Perhaps we can work on our golf swing or maybe uh, <laughs> burn down the neighbor's house. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Ha 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 